Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Now Hear This is a music review podcast and is not directly affiliated with any artists or album projects discussed on the show. Think of us like your record collection come to life. Except for your beloved Hungry Like the Wolf cassette single. Nothing against Duran Duran, it's just like, eat a sandwich, guys, it's not that hard. Jeez. You got a record of your favorite songs. You got an hour and it won't take long. You got a pair of brand new friends. You got a ticket gonna stick to the end. I said, now hear this. Now hear this. Now hear this show. like to welcome to the now hear this podcast simon barber and brian o'connor the soda jerker podcast and the now hear this podcast have fused like some sort of weird giant kaiju robots and i think they're gonna hand us a sword at any minute and we're gonna have to fight a monster that's primarily eyeballs what do you think about that boys what <laughs> that was an introduction i've never done a podcast before this is my first time oh wow <laughs> Sounded sound pretty good, yeah. Is that yeah. okay? Yeah. <laughs> how's it going? How is uh, how's the what is it out there? You guys getting the fall time out there in Britain? Yeah, it's yes, starting to cool yeah. down now. Not that it was ever yeah, we warm. Much, no, we didn't have much of a summer to be fair. But it's, yeah. it's nice. Autumn's my favorite season, personally. Yeah. Or fall. We don't get it in Los Angeles, and it's uh, it's it's a little disheartening. My wife, I was telling Brian off before the call. My wife is from England, she's from a town called Chobham, and uh, we were supposed to go. We had uh, I was supposed to go and see her childhood home and all this, and uh, and then something. Oh, it was COVID nineteen happened? <laughs> oh, uh, that, that thing, <laughs> that thing, and we didn't wind up going there. So I've only been uh, to your native land but once i was there um in 2001 and we did the liverpool trip the mecca and all of that and and uh so yeah it's uh, i i i long to be where you are which sounds like a margot price song now that i'm thinking about <laughs> that's it. very romantic yeah thanks 
But we're talking about an album today that is the opposite, some might say, of romantic. (laughs) And it's an album that was on Ryan Brady's list. So as listeners to the show know, Ryan was a copious note taker and uh, a a diligent planner and left me with about 30 odd albums that he wanted to cover on this show. So I've been going through each of them with different special guests and you two, uh, Brian and Simon. Should I call you Cy? Do I know you like that? You can call me whatever you want. (laughs) <laughs> all right is that okay i don't i never know what to do with the nickname with the with the, yeah. with the abbreviations i don't know what to brian do brian Sai is fine yeah people from liverpool shorten everything so they do yeah <laughs> okay well brian Sai are gonna join me for an album that i was really happy to see ryan added to our list and it is an album called this is spinal tap by the fictitious slash also real group Spinal Tap. And of course, there's a a movie and as I discovered a sequel, which is magnificent and actually several albums from this group. But uh, Brian, I was wondering, when did you first come across Spinal Tap? Was this uh, because I know this is one that you you chose from the list. Was this like a a childhood favorite Mm -hmm. film of yours? Like, I mean, most people have seen the movie, but how about the album? Was that in your rotation when you were younger or today? For me, definitely, yeah. I think it was me that introduced Psy to it as well. I think yeah. the first time I even saw the name Spinal Tap was, it must have been around 92. I think it was around the time, well, no, I know it was around the time Wayne's World came out because right. it, there was an interview with Dana Carvey. <laughs> me and, both me and Psy were heavily into Wayne's World. And um, I saw an interview with Dana Carvey where he said his ambition was to one day play drums for Spinal Tap and explode. It was something like that. Said. <laughs> and I was like, what the hell does that mean? Because I didn't know what Spinal Tap was, didn't know what he meant by exploding. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think just I started to, I mean, I don't even know how I did it because in those days it wasn't like you just hop online and, right. you know. Um, so I think I must have had a little mooch in, in our uh our local record emporium <laughs> and uh, and found the, the soundtrack. I, I I was thinking about it earlier. And I think I may have bought the soundtrack before I saw the film. Wow. Because wow. I was just so intrigued by this notion. I think by this point I knew they were kind of this fictional band and there was a movie and yeah, but that was really all I knew. So I seem to remember I heard the songs first. Huh. which is probably a very ass about face. But um, <laughs> yeah, that's how it happened. And then I, I discovered the film not long after that, bought that in the same place, HMV on, on Church Street in Liverpool, and just fell in love with the movie. Still one of my favourite films. I haven't actually watched it in a long time because I know it so well. It's one of those movies that I've just, it's just, yeah. it's up here. I know every line of dialogue, I know every scene. So I don't kind of have to watch it very often now. So that was my discovery around that time. I think I sort of hipped side to it after that, did I, Sai? Yeah, I think so. I was trying to think back, actually, today as to when I first came across it, and all I could think was that you probably recommended it and maybe <laughs> maybe lent me a tape of it or something. Yeah, um, I had that on cassette. I bought it on cassette, the soundtrack, yeah. Right, yeah. And it's probably just since then, it's just become so respected, hasn't it, and so much a part of the culture that, right. you know, you just kind of continually get exposed certainly to clips of key scenes wherever mm-hmm. you go right. and then of course i've seen the film several times since as well so i suppose that the songs just kind of i ingested them through the film i suppose more than yeah. i did by listening to the soundtrack but i'm quite sure it was bribe that put me onto it and i think maybe 
because it was around the time we were both getting into music and, and playing guitars and things. So we were, we were probably reading music magazines and we were both kind of into sort of rock and grunge at the time. So maybe, you know, we saw Spinal Tap references in, in magazine articles and things because every band is, loves that movie and identifies with that movie so strongly. Yeah. So that that's another way in which they probably sort of infiltrated our brains. You said 92. That would have been around mm-hmm. the time where Spinal Tap actually toured the UK. So you might have been seeing a bit of a UK resurgence at that point. It's possible, yeah. Mm. Now that I think about it, yeah, they play like, played like the Royal Albert Hall and stuff, yes. didn't they, around that time? Yeah. But I think I might have just missed that. I might have just discovered them yeah. After that, you know, just yeah. after kind of break like the wind came out and stuff. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So I, uh, I was a big Christopher Guest fan, but mm-hmm. actually I didn't really have, a, my dad tried to show me Spinal Tap when I was younger and I, you know, it was one of those things where I didn't quite get it when I was that young, you know, you have to be, I think at a certain age to find the absurdity of the rock and roll lifestyle. I mean, cause it really is just a brilliant send up of the absolute absurdity of a lot of what the rock and roll lifestyle is. And so I think there's some context, you know, you kind of mm-hmm. have to get into some context of why this is funny before you can truly, truly appreciate, obviously the things like the amp scope to 11, that's all very funny. Cause you know, he, the man's an idiot, but uh, <laughs> you know, th- there's some things in there, which I, the brilliance of it didn't really hit me right away. I actually got into a, a movie called a mighty wind first. Yeah. And that's great uh, film. Yeah, Christopher Guest from the early 2000s. And as I discovered, the folksmen from A Mighty Wind have their origins in the Spinal Tap sequel. Blood on the tracks, blood on the line. Brothers and sisters, what a terrible time. Old 97 got in the wrong hole. And in the 60, there's Kind of go on, you know, kind of socially What's concerned that? and up tempo. Yes. Uh, yeah, just a minute. Just uh, we'll settle one thing. Look, uh, if you don't mind, the last time you came in here, you told us to cut a uh, twelve-song set down to four songs. Don't bite trying. the man's head no, off. I'm not, no, I'm not. I'm not being. I've got a rowdy crowd out there. I want to see a Spinal Tap, and they're just going to tear you apart, lads. You know, I think we should just call it a day. So you're basically saying that uh, we're free to go. The Folksmen are going to open for Spinal Tap, and That's they right, play yeah. the Folksmen. And I mm-hmm. had no idea. I was amazed. I was shocked. Yeah. No, Mighty Wind's a great movie as well. I think that might be my favorite of those Christopher Guest um, yeah. films. It's just yeah. just brilliant. It's hard to beat. It's so, well, it's funny, but it's it's sort of it's tender as well. It's moving. Yeah. And um, the songs are great, and it's yeah, I love that one. Very fond of that film. So, yeah, obviously he's got a, an affection, Christopher Guest, for music. And I'll get into a bit of the background of where this movie and, and Christopher Guest's whole kind of deal came from. But basically, Michael McKeon, who's the uh, one of the actors who plays one of the members of Spinal Tap, and Christopher Guest met while they were in college in New York City in the 60s. And they played music together first. So that I found super interesting because <laughs> they started music first and i guess i always assumed it was acting or filmmaking or mm-hmm. something because it's such a um, a beloved and well put together film that i don't know i tend to think of that first before music but no music came first for these guys and they worked with harry Shearer and rob reiner on a tv pilot around 1978 so they had been at it for a bit and were kind of palling around friends 
And it was for a sketch comedy show called The TV Show, which featured a parody rock band called Spinal Tap. During the production of that sketch, while being um, burned with oil from an onstage effect, McKeon and Christopher Guest began to improvise, inventing characters that became David St. Hubbins and Nigel Tufnell. So I guess there was some accident that that had happened there, and so they, they were just kind of going with the flow and out pop these characters, which is interesting because my other favorite and maybe my my uh, maybe the parody rock film I like more than Spinal Tap and a Mighty Wind is All You Need Is Cash by the Ruddles. Yeah. yeah. And the Ruddles also started the same way. They were a they were a sketch uh, sort of a hybrid SNL, Monty Python combo, you know, Rutland Weekend Television, I think it was called, uh, mm-hmm. sketch, and that blossomed into the film. So I thought it was really interesting that they both kind of started the same way and around the same time, the late 70s. All right, we got a great show for you tonight from Scotland making their first U.S. appearance, Sits Bad. From Cleveland, Ohio, we got Louisville. From New Zealand, the band that played on the first Meatloaf demo, Jumbo Prawns, plus a special film tribute to Wilma Rudolph. And now, from England, half might say you're gonna love them to death, Spinal Tap! right yeah and i believe um michael mckeon made an album in i think it was like 79 and it was oh, wow. as as lenny from um lenny and squiggy from laverne and shirley <laughs> That's they, right. they lenny and the squig tones they did like a live album <laughs> and i've got it somewhere on a hard drive i don't think i've ever listened to it but i think on that record christopher guest is playing in the band as nigel tufnell i think he he, he played under that pseudonym amazing yeah music of Lenny and a squig tone. I'm Lenny and I'm the squig tone. And that's Max. <laughs> this song is called Night After Night and it's about two nights in a row. Night after night, I tell you in my form. Darling. Night after night, I sample all your tones. Night after night, one. So it was like universes all colliding. Right, right. Yeah, and of course, 78, when, when the, they were doing Spinal Tap, is when actually the Ruddles came out. So there's something in the air at that time. People are pointing out the absurdity. Because, you know, in the 60s, there was a um, rock and roll went from something that was kind of mocked as, a, you know, a youthful, you know, youthful vigor. And then it turned into masterpiece kind of high art, pop art territory with things like Sgt. Pepper and such. Mm-hmm. And then in the 70s, takes a whole other path into this over-the-top place, which you could argue is like the rise of abundances of cocaine <laughs> and, uh, and you know, just the, the sheer popularity of it all. Mm-hmm. And so by the time you get to those late 70s, you're primed to sit down and say, hey, this is crazy what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I'm recalling correctly, what the, what's the guy from Judas Priest like cried when he saw Spinal Tap for the first time? He thought Rob it was, Halford, is it? Is that, is that who is it was? That the, is that the main guy, isn't it, from Judas yeah. Priest, I think? 
I think he said he he openly wept when he saw it for the first time because it was so it was such a send up of of that. So anyway, so we get to the movie now. They're starting to develop a film around these characters, and the entire film was shot in uh, Los Angeles over a period of about five weeks. So that's pretty fast, mm-hmm. and not unlike something like Curb Your Enthusiasm, or maybe Curb was actually inspired by the guest method. The lines in the film are unscripted. And so they have sort of a general direction in which they're going. And maybe the actors have prepared a couple bits beforehand or whatever. But it's actually unscripted stuff, which is really, I mean, remarkable considering the amount of, you know, classic lines that came out of that. That stunned me, actually. Didn't Rob Reiner accumulate something like 50 hours worth of stuff that they then (laughs) brought down to about 80 minutes? (laughs) Yeah, on the DVD, there's a a whole other film's worth of of deleted scenes on on the DVD. Yeah. I think it was after watching the Christopher Guest films and finding out how they were made. Yeah. In that similar semi improvised way that I found out that Spinal Tap was done the same way. I didn't realize it until then. And as you say, you know, it's kind of incredible how they could just come up with those lines on the on the fly, those jokes that have just entered the sort of consciousness. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's partly on the talent there, but it's also, mm. I mean, you know, the talent of the comedians involved and the actors involved. But it's also, I think, on the idea that there was a lot of, it seemed, vision there. There was a lot of direction. There's a singular purpose behind what they were mm. doing. And, you know, it, it has almost this homespun quality to it at, at one point, but it also is kind of slick and polished on another hand. And so, yeah, it's just a beautiful work of art. And I guess you could read it like a student film, but my God, just over the top, beautiful, beautiful film. They're just such talented people though, aren't they? Like they understand the turn of phrase and why that's going to be funny. You know, like something like, right. like non more black or whatever, like putting, <laughs> putting those words in that order is funny. Saying yeah, it any yeah. other way is not funny, but they know no. they have that taste, that ability to say, well, if we do it this way, that's going to be funny, you know? And plus, as you said earlier, that, that mastery of the conventions of rock and the, its worst excesses and then being able to just pick on those things and, and yeah. then sort of reproduce them in humorous context. Like the, the conversation around the table where they're talking about with the girlfriend, you know, the, the different <laughs> like identities that she's created for them. And, and he's just like, is this a joke? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like those moments are just what makes the whole thing completely priceless, I think. But they, it's because they know that that's... Yeah. That's what happens in those bands, you know. It's done out of love. There's a real love there for it. And even though it's crazy, even though it's over the top, you can tell that it's because this genre means so much to them. And so yeah, that's what I mean. Like, there's a genuine quality to it. The affection, and that, that comes through in the music. Yes. The, the music, the songs are they're funny, yeah. but they're also taken completely seriously. <laughs> right. they're, you know, yeah. they're, they're well-constructed, well-written Really well arranged songs. Right. They're authentic sound, and 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 they, and they can actually play their instruments. Yes, you know if they were just kind of pretending or really bad musicians or bad songwriters, it just, it wouldn't work. Because right. I think you need to believe that at some point these guys had a, a, a fairly successful career. You yeah. need to buy into that for the film to work. So the songs have to be pretty good. It's no good just sort of them just being deliberately naff. Right, and that's that's another reason why the ruttles work so well. It's not um, it's not just kind of taking the piss. It's it's those songs were written with a real affection and admiration for for what the Beatles achieved. 
Yeah. And, and you know, they were put together with a lot of love, love and care, you know. Yeah, Neil Innes, same thing as Christopher Guest. You know, when, when they're both writing these kinds of songs, I mean, and I guess Michael McKeon, too, co- mm-hmm. co-wrote a lot of the songs. They're doing it with an, in a deep knowledge and a deep love for it. And actually, they're pretty damn good songwriters, too. Absolutely. I mean, especially Neil Innes. I'll never forget. I had on, not to make this a ruddle cast, I promise this won't be a ruddle cast because that'll be its own episode. Uh, but I had on the All You Need Is Cash soundtrack. I was playing it around the house and my wife walked in. And she's like, Is this the, what is this, the monkeys? It's like she thought it was the monkeys because <laughs> it sounds like it's real. You know, it sounds like it's a real beetle. Another faux beetles kind of right, 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 right. thing. No, but, but uh, uh, yeah, the Neil Innes and that, that sort of whole. Uh, approach to making things that are, I guess, a parody, but also just uncanny in in how accurate they are, is is quite an art, isn't it? Yeah. And we asked, yeah. um, we had Harry Shearer on the podcast on our podcast and asked him um, about the rules, didn't we, Brian? He he said that um, that that was kind of very much uh, about doing an alternate universe version of a specific band, but that's not what they were trying to do at all with Spinal Tap which yeah. I thought was yeah. interesting. You know, theirs was purely fictional and it could remind you of any kind of extravagant rock band. Yeah. That's was- it, yeah. I think that's another reason it works. It's not like any of the songs, you know, you could say, oh, well, this is obviously a direct rip-off of band X or band Y. You can hear in each song, like, oh, well, that's maybe, you know, you can hear like a, a Beatles influence or a Stones influence or a Who influence or any number of rock bands that maybe a ZZ Top influence here or there, right. you know, but you couldn't necessarily just pinpoint, right, this song is a parody of this band. And that's another reason it works. And it gives it their songs their own identity and makes you believe that this is a, a real band that existed. That's right. Yes. And that's, it's kind of almost the difference between Marvel and DC in a way, actually, because DC has like Metropolis and Gotham. And that's more of the Ruddles thing where it's like an alternate universe version of our world. Mm-hmm. But then it's like, you know, Spinal Tap could have lived in our world and actually did. And that's what I love the the blurring of the lines there where they actually go out on tour and stuff. And we were talking yeah. about the musicianship. Boy, Christopher Guest is a really good guitarist. Like when he's up there and he's shredding, you're like, oh, this guy's pretty good. I mean, he's not like amazing, but he's like really good. You know? good. Well, that's another reason I think it works. They're not like out of this world musicians, <laughs> but they're very solid and, and competent musicians. Right. Again, I don't think it'd work quite so well if they could all shred. But they're <laughs> yeah. all they can all deliver and be convincing as a as a band. Right. You know? But they are no Christopher Guest, I think, plays it few things doesn't he I think he plays a lot of sorts of stringed instruments he plays the mandolin mm-hmm. as well which he does on on stonehenge, stonehenge of course yeah. um <laughs> that's a really nice uh, nice sort of celtic moment isn't it <laughs> I, I really that's my favorite bit of that song but we'll, we'll get to that i'm sure yeah yeah well so a couple of the other notable uh, people who make appearances in this film took me by surprise because i watched it recently i picked up a copy at amoeba for what a five bucks or something because i hadn't seen it in a while and i thought well you know it's an excuse to go to amoeba so I watched it and I was I was checking it out and I was surprised to see a young Fran Drescher there yeah. who plays a uh, sort of a smart not really smarmy but I don't know very New Yorky kind of A and R rep who is her whole thing is the whining and the dining side of the music business and she yeah. really owns that space like she owns it to the point where I thought Fran did you do this job before you were because she really yeah, she's very convincing yeah yes very convincing you've got she own- Patrick McNeese in there as well he's the label the, the boss Avengers. isn't he yeah yeah, yeah. Um, who's, who's great as well mm-hmm. Billy Crystal 
yeah. is in there, as well as the aforementioned Dana Carvey. From in the same scene well. with Billy, in yeah. The same scene. Yeah. And Angelica think... Houston's in there as well. Yeah. In the, um, where they're doing the stage, where uh, they realize that they've built the um, Stonehenge in miniature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then there's uh, Paul Schaefer, Fred Willard, who has never been young. Like Leslie Nielsen, I feel like Fred Willard has just never, ever been young. (laughs) He has been old since he popped out of the tomb. He doesn't have like Benjamin Button disease, but he's got like Benjamin Velcro disease, where he's like the same age. Yeah, he seems to stay like that for like decades. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So yeah, a lot, a lot of people. Uh, Ed Bagley Jr., tons of people. So this is Spinal Tap. The movie was released by uh, Embassy Pictures. And uh, I do love that in-universe Spinal Taps believes Metallica stole their Smell the Glove black cover for their idea <laughs> for the for the black album that, that they had put out, which is really, really funny to me. And uh, the album itself was recorded, engineered, and mixed by Patrick McDonald at L.A. Studio in uh, out here in Hollywood, edited by Kenneth Carmen, And on drums uh, features Rick Parnell, who was a real-life rock and roller, played in bands like Atomic Rooster, Donovan's Brain, Horace, and Tristan's as far back as 1972. And uh, the cover art, I guess the original release cover art, was all black to mimic the Smell the Glove LP Mm -hmm. from from the film. Uh, The album was released worldwide on March 2nd, 1984 by Polydor Records, though some labels do say Polymer Records, which is the (laughs) fictional fictional record label from the film and um it was produced by christopher guest michael mckean and harry Shearer. and performance credits uh go to michael mckean on guitar and vocals harry Shearer on bass and vocals christopher guest on guitar mandolin and vocals plus rj parnell on drums and percussion david calf on keys and all songs were written by christopher guest michael mckean harry Shearer, and rob reiner or one one or more combinations therein so before we get into the record itself, you know, I just wanted to say, you know, we've talked a little bit about it, but I love Christopher Guest a great deal. And this is oddly enough the movie I'm like least familiar with from his from his run of stuff as we talked about. So it was really actually great getting reacquainted with this. And I would encourage everybody out there if you I mean, don't pause this or, or careen off the road to go get it or anything, but make some time pick up this movie or stream it or something and actually check it out because I think it'll provide a lot of context uh, for what we're about to talk about here today in terms of the songs themselves. Uh, there, there is a very specific kind of parody that is happening here that is parodying a very certain kind of rock and roll that I don't always classify myself as. You know, when I was in high school and early college, I could fall into the arena rock mode a little bit more. I think every kid or most kids anyway do at a certain time in their lives when sort of ACDC hits them for the first time, these kinds of bands. But to see it on display here gives me the impression that sure, this is a send up, but it holds a special place in the filmmaker's heart. So even though like we talked about, you know, they're going to sticks concerts and maybe giggling at how over the top it is, it's clear that they love this stuff and it's mm-hmm. clear that, that that's what they're doing it for. So we have a tradition on this show where before we go into the track by track, we saunter over to a little place called Paul's Bullet Corner. Good morning. I'm going to be your instructor. Okay, I know you're anxious to jump right in. Paul's Bullet Corner is where I summarize the album we're about to talk about with weird poetry. And I normally have between three and four for this one, but I, you know, I only have two here. 
guys. So I'm sorry okay. to let you down, but if you'd like to do a few ricochets and think about your own, I wouldn't stop you. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> uh, so my first bullet here is sad but funny but true, mm-hmm. and that is uh, you know it bounces around a lot of different emotions. It's sort of sad that rock and roll had fallen quite that far, but it's also sort of funny and it's also kind of true and you sort of embrace it. So that's my first bullet. Sad, but funny, but true. Second bullet here, they send up so far, they're in front of me. (laughs) Uh, And so there's a song on this album, which we'll talk about, which sounds, guys, so much like English tea. It makes me want to cry. That's so weird that you said, I'd put that in my notes. (laughs) And so it was really, really funny to me that this song that came out on a 2005 Paul McCartney album or whatever it was Mm -hmm. is is being parodied decades earlier. (sighs) Uh, Do you guys want to contribute any bullets or should we launch into the tracks here? Do you have any... Do you have any? Oh no! I, I think carry, I think you've on. summed it up pretty uh, pretty well, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. No. Okay. All right. Sad, well, sad but funny but true. I think was pretty. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Nailed well, it. All right. Well. All right. Thanks. <laughs> all right. We're getting into the first track here. Hellhole. <laughs> Now that is a start to this album, uh, a, a true kickoff track. I love this one. Of course, this is a the fictional first single from the band's Smell the Glove LP in the film, which winds up picking up some major steam in Australia, I think, by the time that the film ends. But this is a, a perfect pastiche of over-the-top arena rock from the 70s. And the funny thing is, like all best parody or, or comedy music in existence, the musicianship is actually, you know, like we said, really tight and could mm-hmm. pass for the real thing. And I, I just, I wound up really loving this song, Falling in Love. It's a great opening track to the record. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I was wondering who actually sings this because I was watching the video before. Yeah. I guess it was released as a single, um, if there was a video. But in the video, Chris Guest mimes the verses and, and Michael McKean does the choruses. You don't see it, in the, you only see a chorus, I think, in the, in the film. Right. And it's interesting because it doesn't, it sounds like it's Michael McKean all the way through to me. But in, yeah, as I say, in the video, it's Christopher Guest singing the verses. So um, yeah. that, was just some, that was just an observation I made. I think there's some harmony on there, I think, actually. I think they harmonize on this one particularly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's some great harmonies throughout the the, the record actually. But um, no, this is a great one. I love the um, I like the dueling guitar solos at the end in particular. Yeah, which end up just completely getting in each other's way, which I'm assuming <laughs> was like a deliberate thing. <laughs> yeah, that video you referenced actually picked up some airplay on MTV around that time in the in the early days of MTV. So yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's really funny to me that it was even as a parody. It was, you know, it was actually it was watched still and kind of, the, yeah, yeah, right. legit as well. Right. And it contains its own kind of narrative as well, doesn't it? The 
they haven't just gone with a kind of a generic idea. They've actually fleshed it out a little bit, and you get a sense that this is someone who kind of lives in a hellhole or whatever, and then becomes successful in some way, and then longs for their salad days. Longs for the hellhole. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is quite a nice kind of well, it's a kind of rock um, rock cliche, I suppose, in some way, but uh, it works in this context, I think. It does, yeah. I was digging around about this one before. I actually found a quote from uh, Michael McKean where he said the original title was Time Code. They had the title Time Code, and that was the refrain. And then they tried to write a lyric around that, but it just was a bit too clever, clever. Yeah. So they just they thought Hellhole instead and, and built a kind of story around that title. That's mm. interesting. Huh? It was Christopher Guest who started this one, I think, with that opening riff. It was his. He came in with that, and then mm-hmm. it, it went from there. Yeah, it's uh, the the lyrics are beautiful. I, I mean, they're deceptively simple. And and what I love about the songwriting here is that it hits you over the head with how clever it is in ways that you maybe aren't necessarily expecting as you're listening to the songs. Because it it can all seem a little you know sort of flashy and stuff, and then you realize what they're what they're saying, and the jokes are so layered sometimes and subtle mm-hmm. in other ways that it bears repeat listens because you'll catch things the more times you listen to it. it's almost like watching like arrested development or something where there's so many jokes happening it bears repeat watches because you'll yeah. find something new to enjoy about it but in this one i pulled these lyrics the tax man's coming the butler quit <laughs> this ain't no place to be a man i'm going back where it started i'm flashing back into my pan i'm flashing back into my pan is so beautiful. I love that line. line so That's much. a great line. The yeah. kitchen stinks of boiling snails was my favourite. <laughs> <laughs> just says so much about the lifestyle. <laughs> I think that the beauty of a lot of these lyrics is, is I think it's, it's testament to that these are very smart, literate guys yeah. who aren't afraid of being silly at, at the same time. And that's something that always appeals to me in in comedy, in general, you know, uh, people like sort of Conan O'Brien, you know, um, or the Monty Python guys, people who are just super smart but have a really healthy sense of of silliness. Or Peter Cook, you know, if you listen to like Derek and Clive, yeah. a lot of that's kind of juvenile and, and 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 stuff. But then every now and again, he'll throw in a reference to like Bertrand Russell or so, you know what I mean. It's like he'll remind <laughs> you now and again, I'm I'm actually really smart. But um, I, I've always liked that sort of balancing act between the the silly and the and the smart. Yeah, I mean it's it's, it's a contrast, right? It takes you by mm-hmm. surprise, like uh, what I'm saying, and sometimes it, they're they're deceptively stupid. In the case of Conan O'Brien, that's a great example because yeah, he he'll enjoy a fart joke as much as the next guy, but he mm-hmm. is so well read. Oh yeah, and he's at, he's also another good musician. There's a lot of holdover between comedy and and musicians. You know? Yeah, it's a definite crossover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, well, anyway, that brings us to track two here. One of my favorite titles on the album, uh, Tonight I'm Gonna Rock You Tonight. Again, is really beautiful, hilarious uh, send up of 
every song that basically sounds like that or any title that basically sounds like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I feel like this of the bunch, this one may be aged the least well, but is still hilarious. There's the, what is it? You're sweet, but you're just four feet and you've still got your baby teeth. <laughs> you're too young and I'm too well hung, but tonight I'm going to rock it. So, <laughs> Surely one of the greatest lyrics ever penned. Uh. Yeah. Maybe it wouldn't pass the old smell test these days, but... No. Yeah. But that's when why you... I love the, uh, you know, the inappropriateness <laughs> of so much of this. And they know, you know, the, these are not lines they put in songs if they were writing them for themselves. Right. But right. Uh, they're exactly the kind of things that these guys would write at this point in their career. Exactly. And it was funny. I've been on a big Rolling Stones kick lately, and I was listening to Beggar's Banquet the other day. On a, I was out on a run, and there was a line from Mick Jagger in one of those songs where he's talking about how this kid is, is super young or, so, or, you know, she ran away from home and he's going to go fuck her in some attic or something. I was like, dude, like he's talking about like, she's going to be late for school or something. I'm like, Mick, God, dude, maybe don't for five minutes, man. Jesus Christ. But that's when I, when I hear a song like tonight, I'm going to rock you tonight. I think that's in reference to a lot of that sort of Mick Jagger kind of swagger, sort of yeah. like sleazy sex yeah. drugs and rock and rolly kind of, you know, thing. That definitely yeah. would not pass the smell test today. I think Donovan had a few lines like that as well, didn't he? <laughs> I, I think he did, yeah. <laughs> Poor I old love. Donovan. He doesn't have come in for a kick in these days. <laughs> you guys ever really talked to Donovan? We've never We're, have, actually. No. I'd like to. Yeah. He's but, around. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I love, I love Maybe the, one day. I do love the title of this one, though. The fact that they put tonight in there twice. It's just, perfect. Yeah. It's just perfect. It's like, uh, <laughs> allow myself to introduce myself. <laughs> isn't it? yeah. it's, right. it's like a kind of a kiss title. It makes me think of kiss, yeah. that title. Yes. Yeah. I love the idea that Rob Reiner was in the mix doing lyrics <laughs> on these as well. You can just see his sensibility, you know, in, in terms of, well, I guess the stuff that he must have selected for the film, but in terms of the song lyrics, you can see him saying, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I like yeah, because according yeah. to Harry Shearer, we, we asked about we asked about the general. What was the sort of writing? How did you pair off, or how was the writing done? And, and uh, Harry Shearer said Rob Reiner was very much involved in the in, not so much in the musical side, but lyrically he was there, and they were all bouncing yeah. lines off each other. You know, it's so funny. He's got a lot of great. I mean, he plays the straight man in the movie, so you know he doesn't often get the great lines. Mm. But in the sequel, and I'm going to reference the sequel a few times, so I apologize, everybody. I was just amazed that this thing fucking existed. Yeah, it was but, made for uh, telly, that wasn't it? I think it was made for TV. The sequel. Yeah, so basically, it was a film version of the live show that they put on in in England, mm -hmm. and um, they intersplice different like segments in between it, so they catch up with the Christopher Guest character as he's going through the different inventions that he makes. Like he made like a, like a gigantic capo or something to put around the amp. <laughs> so he puts a capo on the amp to change the key of the amplifier. <laughs> um, but Rob Reiner has one of the best lines in the sequel where he's talking, he's like, yeah, you know, I've had a hard time since, since the, since the movie, you know, the guys didn't really like what I did. And so uh, he's like, well, I, you know, I did have a feature. It was called the uh, Kramer versus Kramer versus Godzilla. And, uh, and it was just like the way he delivered it was just fucking perfect. <laughs> I think he, um, he does have my favorite line in the film, though, which is the uh, the review of Shark Sandwich. Oh, was Shit Sandwich? Simply a two-word <laughs> review, yeah. 
which apparently took them by surprise when he, they didn't know he was going to say that. So when Christopher Guest like laughs, it's for real because he didn't know that that, that was coming. Oh, it's very good. Yeah. Well, so you were mentioning Kiss before, and one of the I know one of the last like big dives that Ryan did in his life was he was going through a big Kiss uh, phase, and he was listening to every Kiss album and every Kiss solo album. And it's funny because I think he had that streak in him. He had that arena rock kind of. Mm-hmm streak in him and it's something i don't like i was mentioning earlier like i had that when i was younger a little bit i kind of lost it and i guess like zeppelin is as far as i really venture into arena rock territory these days and even zeppelin to me is more of like a like oh that was what i listened to when i was a teenager kind of stuff but um i don't know do you guys have that arena rock streak in you like what is do you have do you have a deep love for any of those kind of groups like a foreigner or something like that or not really I came up a bit on Guns N' Roses when I first started learning guitar. You know, it was yeah. it seemed very exciting, that kind of, like, dangerous band traveling the world, jumping into the crowd, causing riots, <laughs> you know. Of course, when you actually get older, you realize it's quite an affected kind of thing that they're doing yeah. there because, you know, these are professional people and they're, you know, they're... Uh, they're just making records and trying to sell records, I guess. But um, it did seem fun at the time. And so, yeah, there was a period there, where I think, where I was um, following that kind of thing, especially yeah. you know, 14, 15, that kind of age. It's a good age yeah. for that stuff, right? That's yeah. a prime age for that because you're, you're looking to feel bigger than life. You're exactly. looking to feel, you know. The, That's it, for, yeah. When I was about that age, new metal hit me really hard, which I look back on and I'm mortified. But I look back and think that's kind of what the what arena grew into. It grew into like the the Limp Biscuits of the world and things like that, where it felt really big and dangerous and and over the top and stuff. And yeah, I don't know though. You know, I just I I've kind of left a lot of that stuff for myself in the past, and I've more just sort of gravitated or honed what I like a bit more. Um, yeah, I think I think yeah. As I says, you get old and you realise all that bombast and stuff is kind of preposterous. Mm. But um, <laughs> I think from from a songwriting perspective, we both really appreciate a good solid rock stadium anthem. You know, yeah, they're always good yeah. fun. But as you get older, you're just like, for God's sake, put a shirt on, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stop dedicating chords to members of the audience. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a lot you know what it, it a lot of what turned me around on some of those types of music uh styles i i got a little bit more res- uh, not respect but i got a little bit more understanding or empathy for like what those songwriters were doing there versus what was executed by the artist when you know i, I go to a lot of beatle conventions and um i think his name is gary burr and mark hudson from ringo's roundheads oh yeah gary burr we've spoken to gary burr actually did you uh, uh, yeah, one of our earliest um, guests when he was in Blue Sky Riders with uh, Kenny Loggins. Wow. He was on the show, yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, so he uh, he and Mark Hudson and the other Roundheads were, you know, songwriters for a lot of those types of groups. I think they wrote for um, Aerosmith as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. I, I think Aerosmith is one of those bands that can kind of straddle the line between the over-the-top over arena rock and some of the, you know, more of, you know, genuine sounding actual rock and roll music but um but yeah just get it, it it illuminated for me that you can it, that the songs are sort of separate from the presentation sometimes so the, yeah. the you know that that sort of guns and roses over the top sort of arena rock stuff if presented differently might be perceived a little bit differently but in the end it's all about fun anyway so it's fine i suppose mm-hmm. 
But uh, that brings us to track three here, Heavy Duty. album highlight for me in fact only a handful of spots for me that even come close to kind of touching this one for me i i love this song i think it's one of my favorites yeah great chorus and this is a could have been a bona fide stadium anthem i think do do you know i think listening back to the album now it's kind of overdue maybe a a remix or a remastering because it just it, it sounds a little bit thin yeah. So songs like this that should kind of like really bash your brains out <laughs> don't quite, but, but you know, obviously the intent is there, but just sonically it doesn't quite have the, the punch that it that it should. Right. But it's a great track, yeah, a fantastic chorus. Um, and that line, why waste good music on a brain? <laughs> yeah, another, right. another brilliant one. Yeah, it seem, it makes sense in the context of the song, and then when you think about it afterwards, you realise it's completely meaningless. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. But I love just, it. Yeah, yeah. No light, fantastic. Ever crossed my mind the meditation stuff. That meditation stuff can make you go blind. <laughs> just crank the volume to the point of pain. Why waste good music on the brain? Which is really funny because in the movie they go through that meditation sort of sitar mm-hmm. '60s face, which yeah. we'll listen to later in the album, but. It's really funny. I The best quote I found from this one online was uh, from NPR's, uh, I think, Timothy Bracey said of this one in 2011, I actually had forgotten that this wasn't a Kiss song and nothing more needs to be said. <laughs> yeah, it is very Kiss, yeah. It's yeah. another McKeon song, this one, isn't it? Um, Tonight I'm Gonna Rock You Was and, and I think Heavy Duty was as well. Is that right? I believe. Uh, well, McKeon wrote this for Lenny and the Squig Tones, didn't he? Oh, was that wrong? I didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, late oh, okay. 70s when they were doing Laverne and Shirley, I think. And it must have been in a, a diff, very different arrangement, I'm I guessing. Would, I would think so, yeah. Yeah, I'd like, be interested to hear that. Wow. But, um, no, I like I, I like the riff. I like the way the um, in the intro the bass ascends chromatically under the riff. I think that's a yes. really nice sort of musical choice they make there. No, it's very satisfying, this one. You've got that classical melody at the end as well. That's right, yeah. Which is it's kind of a masterstroke because metal bands always love neoclassical kind of stuff, <laughs> yeah. don't they? Ingve yeah. Malmsteen type <laughs> deal. Yeah. So I found some pretty hilarious resources about that ending bit online. Um, there's a great website I pulled for this. I'll reference it later. But it is a, a website written in universe, so in the Spinal Tap universe. Mm-hmm. So it talks as if these songs were real and on the different records that they were on. But I guess that ending bit from this song, Heavy Duty, borrows from Baccarini's String Quartet in E Major. And I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure that this was written in universe like a Spinal Tap LARP or something. But even if that's not the case, I love it. So that is that is where it comes from in, mm-hmm. the, in the back there. Uh, but honestly, just a really good rock and roll song. Heavy duty. Uh, that brings us to track four here, Rock and Roll Creation.
This one is a, a send-up of when rockers inevitably slide into some sort of religion, whether it be genuine or in some mocking, devilish sort of way. And in the movie, Rob Reiner describes this as the band's venture into religious themes. There's a little Pete Townsend-y style break in the middle here, which is... Yeah, very Barbara O'Reilly, that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and I think it's... Uh, I don't know. So part of this was, I mentioned sticks before. Part of this was also feeling a little Dennis the Young ish, a little like poking fun at some of those, mm-hmm. like sticks and that kind of thing. But I think they're poking fun at how seriously some of these people take themselves. And, I, you know, if there's anything to be, to really mock about rock and roll, it's how seriously people take themselves. I, in fact, it's why I love artists like Marco Price who like don't take themselves that seriously. Yeah. You need that sense of humor. You can't be. It's it's only rock and roll, baby. You know, but they they capture that perfectly in this that sort of proggy, sort of um, cosmic reverence, I guess. You know, <laughs> where it's like all about the universe, and uh, you know, <laughs> and he saw that it was good, and it reminds me of like Jack Black or something. You know, he's always talking about face melting rock and the elements yeah. of <laughs> the elements of the earth and all this kind of stuff. They just capture that, I think. Yeah, it's a bit of a pro- tenacious D prototype, this. So, it yeah. is, it is. I look to the stars and the answers are clear, you know, all of, <laughs> all of that stuff. I love it. Yeah, I think that was, the, well, I think my humble Keen said it was, it was very much intended as something sort of very extremely pompous and pretentious, you know. Right. And it's, of, it's of course, it's attached to a great scene in the movie as well, isn't it? So... Yeah, but again, musically really strong. And, and again, in that proggy way, it's kind of modular. You've got this, this sort of slow and ponderous opening, then you've got the up-tempo chorus, then you, it moves into that synthesizer section in the middle. And, yeah. you know, it's got this, it's almost like a suite. Mm. That's right. Yeah, it's really interesting you mentioned Tenacious D because now I'm hearing that all over this record now that you mention it. Because they, they too have that arena rocky sort of streak. Absolutely. You know, the same kind of thing actually uh which again alienated me a bit from them at first because i it's just not one of my go-tos but when you can when you really live in that world for a moment it is it is kind of nice you know it's nice to visit i wouldn't want to i wouldn't want to live there permanently but it's nice (laughs) but no i think i think this was a mckeon song as well from what i've I've read i think this was mostly his and he just brought he he brought her in pretty much fully formed and they kind of jammed it out a bit yeah uh, an in-universe review of this song said, quote, this pretentious, ponderous collection of religious rock psalms is enough to prompt the question, what day did the Lord create Spinal Tap and couldn't he have rested on that day too? <laughs> the band would later concede that the album had been, quote, underlooked, underbought, and underrecorded. <laughs> <laughs> just, just perfect. Which album was that supposed to have been on? Was it uh, Intravenous de Milo? Is it? That's <laughs> be fair. I love that title so much. <laughs> I want that album to exist. For real. Dream brings us to track five here, America. To America, we came like children from a far and distant land to see America. Build it down to us in America. Absolutely hilarious. In fact, I'd love to get your perspective on this because there is a, it's a send up of like the wave of kind of patriotic 
America songs that were sort of happening in the 70s. You have They're Coming to America, you know, at, at least that one where I'm proud to be in America, all that stuff. And it it's interesting from an English perspective. It's just that it's... You have, you have John Lennon obviously falling in love with New York City in the 70s and stuff like that. I don't know. It's, it seems like there was like a rash of like English s- singers like singing about how much they dug America. Am I making that up completely? Is that a thing out there? No, I think that's probably a thing. Maybe it's not yeah. as emphasized over here as it might be in the destination land. But, <laughs> but yeah. I do, I do yeah. feel like, you know, I immediately get that sense of the sort of Simon and Garfunkel America kind of um, innocence, you know, uh, right. which is funny against the, the kind of songs about pedophilia or whatever they've just been <laughs> but um yeah it it i think a lot of rock acts see themselves as kind of um nomads traveling to a distant land anyway right so it feels yes. like they're, they're doing that kind of cockney kind of uh ode to america you know Mr. Yeah, President, maybe, Mr. Immigration Man, let us into your yeah. fair land. You know, so maybe in the sixties and seventies, it was still a relatively novel thing for UK bands to tour yeah. America. So you know, it was it was it was fresh for them. One thing I realised was this song doesn't actually feature in the in the film at all, does it? More I can. I mean, one of the few songs. The, yeah, one of the right. few songs not performed in the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I wonder if it's in any of the deleted scenes. I haven't watched those for a while, but yeah, I found that quite interesting. But it's another one with a kind of modular structure to it. Got that acoustic yes. open, and then it goes into that up tempo B section. Yeah, really well that. arranged. I like the uh, unison guitars. Those unison guitars on that one. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, Bit Thin Lizzy. Yeah, nice stuff. Super highways here and there, pretty women's everywhere, Brady Bunch and Smokey Bear, buildings reach into the sky, Afro Sheen and Apple Pie, PTA and FBI. <laughs> that's I, that's great it's in its great. own way. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> who's um, they reference? God bless Johnny Appleseed. <laughs> yeah. Who's Johnny Appleseed? I meant to ask that. Uh, he's a fo- sort of like a Paul Bunyan style folk hero over here. I don't know if Paul Bunyan ever made his way over there, but and yeah. Uh, I know the Johnny name. Apple- I know, yeah, I, I guess he was. I I'm pulling this from memory, but he like had apple seeds, and he was responsible for for growing apple orchards around the country. Again, in that sort of Paul Bunyan-y sort of way. I'm probably right. misremembering this. I don't. I no, have no that, that that last bit was the thing that I would have said. So I think you're probably right about that. Okay. I don't know. We got a real thing with apple trees. There was something quite a rock and roll sounding name as well, isn't it? Johnny Appleseed. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well, this is your chance to, I was going to give this uh, an open mic forum for you guys to dunk on America. Was there anything you wanted to, anything you wanted to, uh, to complain? What are we, what are are we to, what are we to you over there? Are we like weird cousins or like, are we sort of an embarrassment or are we sort of like, what do you, what are we to you? I guess, I guess, I guess both of those things more. <laughs> no, obviously, I mean we're huge, we're huge fans of, of of the states, you know, and obviously devourers of popular yeah. culture from yeah from over there. So we've got a lot, you know, a great fondness for the place. It's a beautiful country. It's you know, it's a fascinating place. It has its problems. 
You know, I'm trying to be diplomatic here. <laughs> I don't. I was like the world's worst interview. I like feel like Chris what Farley right now. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, you remember? You remember where there was America? Um, all right. Well, I'll take all of that. I, I think we're all just trying to seek your approval. America's just perpetually trying to seek English approval all the time. Yeah. Mind you, we can hardly w- boast in our current situation. To be honest, <laughs> you know, don't go looking to us as an example. <laughs> Uh, so this is via that website I was going to, Spinal Tap Fan, which again is a wonderful website. After Nigel leaves the band during the 1982 U.S. tour, David refuses to play this song in homage to America because it's, quote, Nigel's tune, written after the band visited Washington, D.C. in uh, in universe there. So just really, I love that there is such a, a mythology around this group. It's really, really great. <laughs> Brings us to track six here, Cups and Cakes. This is the one that I was alluding uh, to earlier about sounding an awful lot like English tea. Um, But obviously this is kind of like... uh, I think in universe, this was from their 1960. There was a 1965 hit single from the pre-tap Thamesman or Thamesman. Thames, Thamesman, yeah. Thamesman, as in in River Thames, yeah. River Thames, sorry, yeah. The pre-tap Thamesman, and appeared backed with "Give Me Some Money," and uh, which we'll hear later in the thing. But I, I, even though this one's kind of silly and and a sort of a funny send up of those sort of English tunes uh, that, that are kind of uh, a little, what do you call them, like Rococo, a little Rococo-ish. Uh, I don't know. I love this song. I like this. And I like it's, English tea, too. So there you this go. Is, this is a favorite of mine, actually. Uh, yeah? Yeah. It's a really nicely constructed little song. And considering it's like, what's a minute and a half long, it packs in <laughs> quite a lot. You know, there's lovely string arrangements. You've yeah. got a key change in there. You've got, you know, um, it, it's just... And uh, yeah, it, it represents lyrically a kind of um, stereotypical kind of twee Britishness that sort of doesn't really exist. You know, it's kind of the stuff of P.G. Woodhouse novels and, sure. and things yeah. like that, you know, Elevenses <laughs> and your croquet on the lawn, all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, That's how I live my life, Bri. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and it's another one I think that doesn't, um, it, you hear a snippet of it on the radio, don't you? In that, um, in one scene in the film, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't really feature. Well, they talk um, about them being washed, uh, washed up. I think. Yeah, where are they now? They, file, I think. Right. They say, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's great. I think. I think this is another. I feel like this is another McKeon led yeah, song. He's he's really fond of this one. I think he said that this they were going for a kind of Eleanor Rigby vibe with the strings on this. Yeah, and he had a kind of. I believe he was briefly in... Have you heard of that band, The Left Bank? Mm-hmm. 60s chamber pop band, Walk Away Renee and Pretty Ballerina and that kind of stuff. And I think he joined after they had the sort of hits and stuff and during the kind of... The, the dying embers of that group. Right. But, um, but... So he does have a kind of vague background in the kind of ch- Baroque chamber pop wow. kind of thing. So maybe that's informed 
this song a little bit, but I, this one I I saw. Um, the, did you see the Unwigged and Unplugged tour when they um they they toured the US in like two thousand and nine? Yeah, doing Unplugged. Yeah, well, I, I was at one of the shows. I was oh, in New York really? at, uh, wow. for the Beacon Theatre show that they Wild. did, and Michael McKean played this just on his own at the uh, <laughs> at the keyboard, and it was so good. I was like, God, those are good chords. That's a really nicely constructed <laughs> song. You know, it really worked well. Really struck me. But yeah. um, no, I mean, you know, again, this is another one where you can hear the nods to. There's a little, you know, there's a definite nod to Penny Lane in there with the sort of piccolo trumpets. Right. Uh, made me think of some of the Bee Gees kind of Odessa era yeah. type stuff. They dabbled a little bit in the chamber pop thing as well. Um, and yeah, and again, it's it's ju- it's just short enough not to kind of outstay its welcome. Yes. I think yeah. both, um, both Spinal Tap and Paul McCartney both sort of picked on very nice choices of words in their songs as well, like yeah. very twee, like I'm so full my tummy aches. Like just, <laughs> just, yeah. just choosing tummy is like is the funny version of that, isn't it? You know, and like McCartney when he did uh, English tea, you know, nanny bakes, fairy cakes, and all of that stuff. The word peradventures in there. Exactly. Well. It's just it's a it's a sensibility, isn't it, to be able to choose the right kind of language to capture that Britishness, if you like. Yeah, I think that yeah. that's not English tea, as we touched on earlier, I think is, it's it's Macca's Cups and Cakes. I think he was very he was very aware of what he was doing with that song. I think he was sort of sending himself up a little bit. That line was he very, I think so, very really? twee, very me. That sounds okay. like he, he knows full well how, how some people perceive him, especially those sort of musical, musical leanings. Yeah. I, I think he's aware of that, and that's a little nod. So yeah, I know what you think, but I don't give a fuck. That's really? the vibe. I, in the same way as um, silly love songs, you know, yeah. he's aware he's seen as this kind of guy who writes all these soppy love songs. But, but I don't care. Here's another one. You know, I, that's interesting. You say that. as a Maca sycophant, I tend to give him <laughs> a lot of credit when it when it's maybe even not due. But one of the things. I wouldn't even call it a criticism. One of the curiosities about Paul to me is how unself-aware he sometimes tends to... Uh, sometimes I perceive him as... Obviously, I don't mm. know the man personally, so I don't really have an idea. But it was one of the interesting things out of that McCartney 321 documentary where he said... He was talking about con- contributing to the other Beatles songs, and he said something like, yeah, and I would always blurt out my ideas first, and they'd all hate me for it. And I was like... Oh, son of a bitch! He does know. I th- he is self aware. Like, because for a while I didn't get a, a sense that he maybe was. I thought it yeah. was just, I don't know. Just he presents uh, maybe presents himself as being a little bit whoa, easy going and whoa, you know. <laughs> um, but I think as as we say in Liverpool, he's not soft. He, right. he gets it. He, he understands sort of. I think how he's perceived more than than we think he does. Yeah. Um, but I think. But by the same token, there is an element of of being sort of unself aware, and that's one of the great things about him because it yeah. it leads him to do right. weird shit that you know ends up on his records and you know um, things like McCartney Three and stuff right. like that. I think you need a bit of unself awareness to to make a record like that. Yeah, you don't you don't get dark room if you're only or, yeah or I McCartney mean, Two. Yeah, exactly. Right, yeah, if you're yeah. 
you're going to go for that. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't mean to pick on the man or to derail this into a Paul McCartney conversation, because as you no. guys know, I could talk about Paul McCartney oh, all day. Me too. I, the last <laughs> thing I will mention, uh, the uh, aforementioned uh, flea market I was at today, I found a McGear shirt. An original wow. promo wow. shirt from the seventies. The thing is, it wasn't it wasn't in my size, and it was also something I would actually want to wear. And they were charging way too much for it. But uh, when do you see a McGear shirt? I'm not. I'm it? not even sure Mike knows that, that exists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, McGear match. Wow. <laughs> it was a promo thing. I've also found a Spies Like Us hoodie from the time, like it came out. And I was just like. <laughs> wild i would buy that but wild uh brings us to track seven here big bottom now this is an album highlight for me This one, Heavy Duty, are, are wound up being my two favorites. Uh, this the the synth work on this album as a whole kind of rules, but this track in particular, actually, just really, really good. It seems to me like a send up of like uh, what Queen, you know, Fat Bottom Girls sort of thing. Yes, <laughs> I think Michael McCain said that as well. That the that, that he thinks that's probably what they were inspired by at the at the time. Yeah. But the lyrics of this thing are really, yeah. really, really funny. I mean, I to read them is not going to really do them justice, but it is really, really... These are truly funny lyrics. The deeper the quicksand. Yeah, the, yeah. the, the looser the waistband, the deeper the quicksand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any song that can get flesh tuxedo in there is... Um, <laughs> yeah. Fine I mean, that's it. the thing as well. You know, any, any sort of... I guess any songwriter who's ever attempted to write a funny song would, would tell you how... Know, difficult it is not only to write a funny song but to have it remain funny like i laugh every time i hear those lines in that right. song it's it's still funny to me you know and that's that's an incredible trick to be able to pull off and similarly you know the some of the rural stuff some of the lines in that stuff you know they, they really crack me up yeah. and, and oh, yeah. repeated listens like they never seem to wear off those jokes it's it's an odd thing when when he reads when he says do I have to spell it out and then he spells out cheese and onions and cheese real, and onions exactly <laughs> it makes yeah. me laugh every time good example yeah um, but no this is, this is a favorite of mine as well um, it's the the bass anthem to end all bass anthems I think yeah yeah so that's what I was gonna say so the, in in universe this is another in universe quote but Nigel Tufnell says of this uh, song historically people love hearing low sounds whales orangutan various creatures of the night they all love a low sound and uh so this harry shearer who plays Derek smalls as we we've talked about is a real bass player and often finds and often works on music with his wife who is um a singer songwriter jew with owen i don't know if they're still together are they still i think together? i think so as far as i'm aware yeah so harry says that the uh the band spinal tap had done a few different arrangements of this song in particular and they love playing it regard regarding the bass aspirations he told song facts i practice every day and my real love right now is the upright bass but i love playing both instruments i live in a city full of great musicians i know where i am in that pecking order and i'm fine with that i don't have any illusions i'm an amateur but i work hard and i've allowed and i've been allowed to get on stage and jam with some acts down here 
that's happened from time to time and i feel incredibly privileged and extremely nervous but i love to play and you get that love boy you get it it's it's comes through in the film because you see this one performed in the film too yeah and he really is he's in that character you know he's grooving and it looks like he's having fun you know the guy and the character yeah and this is love the way the bass sounds on that and the way it moves in the verse that little sort of hook that he's playing in the verse is um... yeah well i made the note that i think they did something really for all this sort of pastiche and parody and things they did something really quite unique with this song I can't think of any rock or metal band who did anything like this, really. And that just, just you know, by virtue of having three basses right. on a song, <laughs> that's got to be a first. And uh, and yeah, and just that combined with those synth touches that you talked about, the atmosphere of it, um, combined with the, the humour, it's, it's a very singular track, this, I think. Whereas all the others have that kind of the roots in stadium rock, this is something else entirely, I think. Yeah. Although a, it does have that that faint kind of Queen influence, I guess. Right. It's more of like almost a new wavy kind of... I mean, this is at the end of new wave, but with that synth in there, it does sound... I don't know, it sounds so Yeah, it's legit. a little bit what, caused, that synth, I think. A little, yeah. Or yeah. even some kind of... I mean, Jeff Lynne would never do something like this, but there is like almost a little bit of ELOE sort of space space age shit happening in yeah the atmosphere too. yeah i know i see what you mean but i think uh, uh, well we asked harry shearer about this as well and as he remembered that they wrote the lyrics first for this so they they had the idea of a song called big bottom um and the, the concept of them all playing bass on it but they, so they started there and then sort of came up with the lyric and then built the music around right around the words apparently okay Right. Well, so Soundgarden evidently covered this live uh, a few times wow. in the early 90s. <laughs> well, I can hear Chris Cornell singing that, actually. Yeah. No, <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. So that brings us to track eight here Sex Farm. So this one, actually, and again, I I promise I won't bring everything back to the Beatles. It's a sickness I have. I apologize. Don't worry. You're in. You're with friends here. And (laughs) and all I can say is sickness, but it's not COVID. So it's like, okay. Yeah. It's Um, a good sickness. Yeah. uh, This one was reminding me a little of Dirty World from the Traveling Wilburys. A little. Where every line is an innuendo. And yeah. maybe not all of them make sense, but it's sort of like the gag that even if they don't make sense, it's kind of funny and your brain sort of stretches to no, make the, it make sense. Yeah, the amount of ways they come up with to say the same thing, you know, right. sniffing at your feed bag, bothering <laughs> your yeah. barn door, crouching in your pee patch, yeah. <laughs> the plowing through thing. your bean field. Yeah, yeah. there's plenty. The, the feed bag. Got me. I was when I was listening to this. I was like, "Holy shit!" Um, I and this it, is the song. I think that becomes a hit, doesn't it? At the end of the film, they get it. They have a hit in Japan with this, <laughs> yes. and they, it kind of re- potentially revives the career. 
So Martin Short, one of my favorite comedians, uh, yeah. uh, in the sequel, I get again. Not only will I stop bringing up Beatles all the time, I'll stop bringing up the sequel all the time. But in the sequel, Martin Short is being interviewed, and he's like, you know, every once in a while when I'm working on a scene and I'm really trying to put myself in character, I find I have to cleanse my brain, and um, and so I go into a meditative space and I put on Sex Farm Woman, and he's how he listens to Sex Farm. <laughs> to 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 like meditate before and, and and shows him doing that sort of whatever that weird SNL dance he used to, but uh, but yeah. So as you guys alluded to, the the lyrics here are great. So it's uh, I'll I'll read a couple of these. Getting out my pitchfork, poking your hay. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm gonna mow you down, sex farm woman. I'll rake and hoe you down. <laughs> S- Slipping out your back door. There's lots in here. Again, I don't have too much to say about these things. They're just really funny. And this is yeah. another legit hard rocking track that has no business sounding this legit on yeah. a record like this. Yeah, and, and you yet. can imagine them having a lot of fun writing this as well. Those lyrics. Yes. You can all, yeah. almost um, imagine the bands from the 70s and 80s who would have done things like this with a straight face. <laughs> yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that's what made the Judas Priestman cry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this was another one they did during the um, the Unwigged show. They did yeah. Sex Farm, but in a obviously an unplugged style. They, they, I think it was kind of a sort of a funky kind of thing, and they had they did like a hip hop breakdown where Michael <laughs> McKean like rapped um, the last verse, and and uh, the other two sort of beatboxed. <laughs> yeah, I think it might be on YouTube that, but yeah, no, that was that was that was a highlight of the show, as I recall. I love that. I love that. So that brings us to track nine here, Stonehenge. Now, I feel like this is the track most people would recall from the film because of that amazing scene where the, the tiny Stonehenge comes down and then maybe the little people jokes haven't aged super well, but everything else you know, s- s- still stands the test of time, I think, to this. Hundreds of years before the dawn of history lived a strange race of people the Druids. No one knows who they were or what they were doing, but their legacy remains hewn into the living rock. Really, really funny. What I found particularly funny in reference to the little Stonehenge thing is um, there is a real-life Black Sabbath connection to this song. I don't know if you guys came across this. No, no. But uh, So one of the songs on Black Sabbath's 1983 album, Born Again, is a short instrumental, and the band had some stage props created for several of their songs uh, during that Born Again tour. And by this time in the band's history, both Ozzy and Ronnie James Dio had parted ways with the rest of Black Sabbath, and so they're in sort of this weird nebulous stage themselves. So instead of making mistaking inches for feet, like in Spinal Tap, uh, and getting a tiny prop 
Black Sabbath mixed up feet and meters. And in a 1995 <laughs> interview, bassist Geezer Butler credits the measurement mistake to Black Sabbath's manager at the time. And just like in the film, This is Spinal Tap, uh, this guy accidentally wrote down the wrong measurements and ordered a 15-meter uh, tall prop. <laughs> And at, it was said at 3.2 feet per meter, the end result was a 50 foot tall uh, Stonehenge thing that was uh, was too big to actually fit into the venue. So I just found it really, really funny that even after the movie came out, uh, bands were continuing to be sent sent up by Spinal Tap <laughs> based on jokes that had already happened. But that, that's how good they were. That's how good they were at nailing the rock and roll lifestyle. They were able to predict shit before it yeah. happened <laughs> no but this this song is uh it's the piece de resistance i think of the of the whole soundtrack isn't it um, oh, it's great. kind of a, a kind of a masterpiece in its own in its it, own it way really is. It, it perfectly captures that sort of cod mystical proggy kind of thing you know bands with capes and pointy hats playing synthesizers and whatever you know i mean yeah. where the banshees live and they do live well <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> just I mean that's it in a nutshell isn't it really that's that's yeah. that thing that those bands did but again that's like it. like the film and like like the whole sort of soundtrack it's all delivered straight you know it's not they're not winking at the audience or, or you know there's no kind of tongue in cheek element to it it's it's delivered straight like exactly like one of those bands would do it they commit fully to that idea and and as with all of those, all the songs on the soundtrack, they, you know that's why they work so well. They're committing to the idea. That it's not, oh, okay, we're just playing about. It, it's they they play it like it's deadly serious. Like, and the best comedy obviously works when people aren't yeah. letting on that anything is funny. And, and that's right, why that know. scene works so well in the film, isn't it? Because they're trying so hard to make it good <laughs> while yeah. it's not working. <laughs> but I think that's why it didn't hit me as a kid because it is played so straight, and I was. I think I as a as a real little kid, I was more prepared to accept it as straight and not mm-hmm. as a comedy. So it wasn't even registering as a comedy to me as a really small child. And it's only till after again, it's the context is everything, and so like just really devastatingly funny. Uh, and so just the inappropriateness of you know how how sort of Nigel Tufnell's accent undercuts the the, the portentousness of that intro. <laughs> It should be some very well spoken with a very well modulated kind of theatrical voice, but you've got him kind of going, "No one knows who they were or <laughs> what they were doing." <laughs> He's the last person who should be doing that voiceover. <laughs> what they were doing? <laughs> That's really good. But no, Great. it's fab. And as as we mentioned earlier, um, the mandolin break is my, is probably my favourite bit of that. Yeah. It's quite musically sophisticated overall, isn't it? There's a lot of parts kind of interacting Mm -hmm. throughout that whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful tune. Brings us to track 10 here. Give me some money. You know what I want. You know what I need. Oh, maybe you don't. Do I have to come right flat out and tell you everything? Give me some money. I don't have a lot written about this one. It's kind of, I don't know. I This one sounds like a straightforward sort of like mid-60s rock tune. I mean, it just sounds like a real, 
a real rock song. <laughs> but it, could, if, it sounds like it could have been a hit from that era, doesn't it? Just yeah. that's what I wrote down. I, I, I put down if you, if you didn't know better, you'd be forgiven for thinking it's it's of the period because it is right. probably the the straightest sort of pastiche, I guess. Right. Um, yeah, it sounds a little like the Kinks or like mid '60s Stones or something. Like that. I just yeah, you can hear Jagger in in the vocal. Yeah, yeah. I think I think he's going for a Jagger type sneery, slightly sneery Jagger vocal in the um, right. Uh, you know, but uh, especially but that that I'm looking for pound notes, loose change, bad checks, kind of. Uh, yeah, that's a good line. I yeah, like that line. it is. But the production touches, you know, the Hammond and um, the use of echo and. Uh, it sounds like they've used maybe vintage mics to get that slightly yeah. overdriven vocal sound. Um, yeah, it's terrific. I love this one. This is another favourite of mine on the uh, on the album. And this technically, this is the Thamesman again, isn't it? Right, it's the B-side to Cups and Cakes right. from, from the mid-60s. Yeah, but yeah. I love how the guitar solo is so authentic as well. It's slightly, the notes are a little bit stunted. Like right. some of George Harrison's early solos, you know, when he, 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 you know, he was still developing as a guitarist, and you can kind of hear that slight sort of <laughs> lack of experience in the solo. I think that's right. a really good touch. Is. Um, this Go. is another one they did at, um, when I saw them at the Beacon, and uh, Elvis Costello came out and joined them. Wow! On it for this one, which was a lovely surprise. Yeah, amazing. So that was pretty cool. Don't know if there's any YouTube footage of that, but that was uh, that was special. Well, I'll find it and pop it right here. So I guess this one had a bit of legs outside of the world of the parody-ness of it all because it was featured in the Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead soundtrack in 91 just as a regular tune. Right, so it was, yeah. Yeah, which is that. really funny to me that, that that these songs have transcended the comedy genre. Yeah, well, as we said, it does, it works. It just works as a song, that one, like, without yeah. any... If you didn't have any knowledge of where it came from, you'd think it was a 60s track. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, I've forgotten it was in that movie. I like that film as well. I'm quite fond of that movie. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so we're, we're approaching the end here. The last track before the, the bonus tracks released later is Listen to the Flower People. Now, this one, I think, is my favorite on the record. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love this song so much. because We were talking about Donovan earlier. This one really summarizes that exaggerated form some of these over-the-top hippie-ish sounding songs were, were sounding like in, you know, 67, kind of like that time period. Listen to what the flower people say Getting louder every day. I just love that in universe the band also jumped on the psychedelic bandwagon because of course they did. Because everyone did. And it's just yeah. really funny that they they so nail that of course this band did, you know, in universe. Yeah. And that footage in the movie looks so authentic as well, doesn't it? <laughs> Similarly to yeah. Give Me Some Money as well, the way right. they've aged the film and <laughs> Right. You know, but it's uh it looks so again, you'd just be if you just saw that on its own, 
you could be forgiven for thinking, oh, that's just a clip from the late sixties from like some TV show. Yeah, um, I, but yeah. but no, this is a, a a really lovely tune again. You right. know, um, really captures that kind of hey Ashbury flower power vibe. Um, lovely, great vocal by Michael McKean on this. I thought uh, this yeah. whole timbre is just it's, it, it. It judges it so well. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think instead of picking on like Beatles from that era, some of those other groups, I think this one's more directed at sort of the strawberry alarm clocks of the time, sort of the... Yeah, the, it's like something one. you'd you'd hear on like a Nuggets compilation sure. or something, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you've got the sitar, haven't you? So that's probably the, yeah. the closest yeah. reference to the Beatles in the 60s, I guess. But um, I yeah, love the way that, that sitar solo goes on slightly too long. As well. <laughs> Again, I wonder if that was a deliberate thing. It slightly outstays its welcome, and I feel like they knew, and that's like part of the joke. You've got oh the Mozart God. reference in there as well, haven't you? This, um, dun, dun, dun. yeah, dun, 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 dun. yes, it's really, and the, yeah, the little, the little, the little touches like the, the sort of melisma at the end, the vocal melisma, and the um, that little when someone says no through like a, it sounds like a Leslie speaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, effects to get going. Yeah. And, the production um, is spot on. Actually, all the effects on the vocals and everything are really, really great. And you know, choosing to say "shh" between the phrases and yeah. things like that. <laughs> Just so so sixties, isn't it? It's great. Again, the way you know, similar to the, to the the Ruttles soundtrack. Yeah. Those those little touches, really well observed little touches that just add authenticity to the whole thing. It's so good, yeah. And I think in the in the clip, is I think Harry Shearer, maybe I don't remember if it's Harry Shearer or not. One of them is playing one of those Brian Jones style sort of oval things. I don't know what the hell Brian had. You know that guitar. Oh, I know. Yeah, like the sitar guitar type yeah, thing that he played. Was it? Yeah, that that thing. I think that's. I think it's Christopher were... Guest in the clip. Yeah. Yeah, you're yeah. probably right. You're probably right. That is great. Yeah, again, the little touches making this thing great. And yeah, so there is a bonus track on some of the later releases. Uh, and the one that was released with this one was called Christmas with the Devil on the sort of modern iterations of the album release. It's track 12. And it's a, it's a Christmas track. This is, again, via the Spinal Tap uh, fan website, which is in-universe. NBC TV refused to allow the band to perform it during their 1992 reunion special, saying its lyrics promoted evil. Although The Tap did perform the song on NBC's Saturday Night Live in 1984, uh, Derek said of this, We're not advocating Satanism. Man's relationship with the supreme evil one is a very private affair. The song is just a depiction, imagining what's happening with Satan this time of year. Nigel follows up, think about it from the devil's point of view, is all we're saying. Which is <laughs> <laughs> really funny. So yeah, it's a fun little Christmas Christmas tune. This yeah. was a Harry Shearer song, wasn't it? I believe he, he came up with this one, didn't he? Oh, was that right? Yeah, I think so. And then the rest of them kind of uh, finished it off. Yeah. Great words again on this one. The elves are dressed in leather and the angels are in chains. The sugar plums are rancid and the stockings are in flames. 
the rats ate all the presents and the reindeer ran away. Uh, no, my favourite part of this one is the Phil Spector-esque Christmas message from the band at the end. Yes. That's just yeah. a, an absolute masterstroke, I think, especially in that accent. Amazing. Yeah, we get, you know, like we were saying, there's actually some beautiful musicianship on here, a really complex drum pattern, a surprisingly complex drum pattern, and some, some really beautiful, awesome guitar. And yeah, yeah, this was released as a single in 84 as a seven-inch picture disc that showed the devil wearing a Santa hat on one side and uh, the tap on the other. It includes this... Me- oh, yeah, the message at the end, the, the Spectre thing you say, uh, this is Spinal Tap wishing you and yours the most joyous of holiday seasons. God bless us, everyone. <laughs> so what... What a way to leave this record. Um, so I'll just do a couple follow-up things here. We have a bit of reception. Gentlemen, you've just recorded your first number one. Wow, an award statue! Oh, it's a Grammy! Ryan's beloved Robert Christigau gave this record a very respectable B plus on all music. And the overall score on all music was four and a half out of five stars. The album topped out at number 121 on the U.S. charts. So it wasn't exactly burning up the charts, but the movie mm. did the movie did well and achieved a big cult status. And uh, the, the album survived well into the CD era and maintains its status as a staple of uh, teenagers getting into rock and roll everywhere. The Tap would go on to release two other albums, Break Like the Wind, as you mentioned, in 92, which charted at number 62, which was significantly higher than its predecessor, Mm -hmm. and then Back from the Dead in 2009, which made its way to number 52. And so obviously there is a difference in what the music industry looks like between those two releases, but still it shows that the band could still, you know, put the butts in seats. Mm -hmm figuratively speaking i'm a fan of uh, break like the wind actually i think there's some great tracks on that <laughs> yeah it's so obviously I, a bit it's a bit yeah. slicker you know and they got quite a few sorts of celebrity friends on there as well so it's yeah. a little bit more maybe knowing than um than the original soundtrack but there's some there's a song called rainy day sun on there mm. which is like yeah. a very another kind of anglophile kink style thing <laughs> yeah no that's a good which one is great um, bitch School is on that bitch one. School is on there. <laughs> yeah, Bitch School's good. Bitch School's uh, good. Like Majesty of Rock, um, All the Way Home, which is a song that you hear them sing a cappella in the movie, but isn't on the obviously on the original album. But um, that's another kind of sixties, uh, mid sixties kind of type skiffly vibe. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean they they had toured that album. They toured periodically as we as we talked about. And uh, Harry Shearer also released a solo record as the Derek Smalls character in 2018 called Smalls Change, Meditations Upon Aging, which I'm not sure if he was promoting when he visited with you. Uh, no, it was, um, oh, what was the album called? Uh, it was, what year was it? It was like 2013. I can't think what the album was called now off the top of my head. But no, it was, it was just one of his other solo albums. Yeah. But yeah. Um, no, it was great. It was great talking to him. That was a, quite a surreal moment for us that i was listening back to it earlier on just to get to pull some of those quotes and um it's like shit because i don't go back and listen to a lot of the old episodes but it was really surreal to hear that voice right talking you know it's just such a familiar voice from so many things and right um but that was a trip to speak to him yeah well because he obviously after spinal tap you think 
of all the iconic things you could do with a career, Spinal Tap would seem like a pinnacle, no? Mm-hmm. And yet, <laughs> he would the go Simpsons, on yeah. The Simpsons, yeah, and he would be, I mean, that's really what people know him for. So it's really kind of remarkable that he has both of those super iconic things. And unlike Hank Azaria, he never did anything that uh, would get canceled later on. So he's good. He's, as far as we're concerned, he's still... Oh, no, he did Dr. Hibbert, didn't he? Yeah, he, we're not doing Oh, he that did. Anymore. Yeah, he's been, that voice, they've, somebody, they've replaced him on uh, that yeah. character, haven't <laughs> That's they, right. now? Yeah. That's right. But, uh, but anyway, this was so much fun, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, people... Check out the Soda Jerker podcast. I'm sure you have. I mean, honestly, I mean, you guys are everywhere. You've introduced, you interviewed so many people. I just want to talk to you guys about who you've interviewed, honestly. Like, I would just like, <laughs> well, we can always talk, do another one. You guys talked to Annie Clark. Oh, my God. <laughs> we did? Yes. She's my yeah, that was cool. uh, she's my my space alien idol from Alpha Centauri. I love her. <laughs> I know. I listened to your uh, St. Vincent's episode actually recently. Did you? On oh, the mass, sed- mass seduction, as it's called, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I really I'd, enjoyed it. No, she's I'd, awesome. Love her. Uh, well, I'd love her. Th- First of all, thank you for listening. That's a huge honor. And also, I had to drag Ryan through that one too, because as Annabelle points out, eh, Ryan didn't care for female singers, if if for anything, <laughs> as he as she pointed out to me, because apparently women were an enigma to him, and he couldn't c- quite. <laughs> He just couldn't put two and two together, but all I would give him is sassy lady rock all the time, and he would be like, why are you giving me this? I'd be like, because just listen to it, motherfucker. It's really good. Yeah. <laughs> no, she's terrific. She's yeah. so good. Yeah. Did you like Daddy's Home? That's the new one, Daddy's Home. We did. Loved mm-hmm. it. I found a, a, a grower, I thought that one, actually. Um, I didn't find it as immediate as some of the earlier stuff, yeah. but um, on a, after a few listens, I was like, yeah, okay. I get it now. It's quite a seductive record, isn't it? It just sort of, yes. you know, draws you in slowly. Yeah, it's very stylized, isn't it? But once you get into that thing, that that specific thing she's doing, it's uh, it's really good. Yeah, yeah. I saw her. I saw that tour live uh, recently at the Hollywood oh. Bowl, and it was so nice to be back watching live music again because. I missed it so much. Yeah. It looks like a great show that she puts on for that one as well. Yeah, because I wasn't sure what to expect from that album uh, on a live setting because that album, I don't know, it was it was released under such this odd sort of fog about this the stuff with her dad and all this. And, yeah. and so it, it made me not really go back to it all that much just because I was sort of exhausted by the time the album cycle mm-hmm. was over. <laughs> but seeing it live, I was like, holy shit. Like she, it's real. It, the tour was superb. It wasn't, yeah. it was really, really good. Well, I'm such an admirer of what you guys do, and thank you so much. It, it's, it, I mean it, it's a real honor to have you both join us on here, Asai and Bri. I really appreciate oh, it. No, it's, it's a pleasure to do it. You know, we, we thought a lot of, of Ryan as you did as well, so it's nice to be able to uh, to deputize for him in this manner. <laughs> I'm just sorry we didn't get to lick my love pump. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, yeah, in D minor. Yeah. Sad as the full keys. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks, guys. You're the best. Thank you. Cheers, Paul. Oh, enjoy every sandwich. That's oh, what I gotta say. yes, that's your catchphrase, yeah. Enjoy every enjoy sandwich. Enjoy every sandwich. <laughs> opinion about the album we discussed today contact us at at now hear this podcast on instagram at now hear this pod on twitter facebook.com slash now hear this podcast or email us at now hear this official at gmail.com see you next time
themselves. Hi, kiddo. I got a dress on. You have a dress on. Um, I have a dress Ellie, can you go see Mama? Uh, I'll find them. Okay, we're talking. Yes, there you Ellie, can you shut the door, please, honey? Oh, dear. Hello, Daddy's trying to get some work done. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, we've got we've got kids. We understand. Yeah. We have a we have a three year old, and we went to the flea market for the first time today. It was a yeah. lot of fun. Aww. Well, hey Ryan. Hey Paul, how are you? Well, I'm good. I'm here to tell the listeners that if they'd like to contribute mm. to help keeping these now hear this episodes coming, well, they can donate, featuring the wonderful new donation technology boop, 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 that boop, boop, boop. Acast has developed for us. That's right, Acast has helped us out. They host the show. Yeah, our hosts, Acast, have made it really easy to donate to the show. They have an Acast supporter feature, and there's a link in the show description that you can follow to kick a couple bucks for the show. It can be five bucks, a hundred bucks, less than a dollar. We don't care. Yeah, just something to keep the lights on. It's all out of pocket, and we do this out of love, and that's it. And we love you all for listening. Thank you very much for doing that. Couldn't said it better myself. <laughs> okay. All right, well, bye then. <laughs> <laughs>